so uh, welcome. Can you all hear me back there? Okay. Yeah. Way back. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. Repositioned. Better. Okay. Good. Nice view. All these body parts. <laughs> yeah, we might sing you a song later about the body parts. This is uh, from Mary Oliver, poet, and she um, dreamt this little poem. She says, Someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness, and it took me years to understand that this too was a gift. Someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness and it took me years to understand that this too was a gift. So tonight I want to um, speak about the, the heart and the essence of the Dharma these teachings of the Buddha, these liberating teachings. And um, there's many gateways or practices into um, deeper understanding, the cultivation of wisdom and compassion. And so the 32 parts of the body practice is uh, a gateway, a doorway amongst uh, more traditional insight meditation practices but they all point to liberation. And it's powerful to sit with the body in both the complexity and the elegance of um, this body and uh, both investigating with our practice both the personal qualities get, that get evoked to the stories of our lives and the impersonal ones, that they're both there. And through these practices of the body, we can experience deeper understanding, deeper wisdom. We're learning to sit with ourselves, and this is not easy. Sometimes I think of meditation at times as walking into a hall of mirrors starring me, myself, and I. Ay, ay, ay. You know, and it also, um, you know, it's kind of ironic because if you look out, it's a pastoral setting. It's so gorgeous and so beautiful. But inside, it's, um, it can be an accelerator, a cooker. And we're getting the good cook and we're learning not to turn away, but to turn towards. Rumi has this incredible poem. Many of you may have uh, known about this poem called The Guest House, where he's pointing to this turning inwards. He says, this being human is a guest house, and every moment can be a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness, a momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. And then he encourages us by saying, welcome and entertain them all. It's pretty.
pretty radical welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep all of your furniture. Still treat each guest honorably. It may be clearing you out for some new delights. The dark thoughts, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door. Invite them in. This is pretty radical. The most of our orientation is to turn away from the pain, physically, mentally, and emotionally. And, you know, this is also pretty common as a human being. For most of us, seek to have pleasure and to feel good, to be safe, and, and shy away, of course, from the opposite. difficult at times to turn inwards. And for many, uh, there's not much of an interest. And it's very haunting. There's a quote that I found from St. Augustine. And this is written in the year 399. That's a long time ago. 399. It's 217. What? No. 2017. 217, we're actually a little bit earlier than St. Augustine, never mind. And, um, but this is written in the year 399, and this is kind of a, an observation. He says, people, to travel, people travel to wonder at the height of the mountains and at the huge waves of the seas. People wonder at the long courses of the rivers and the vast compass of the ocean. People wonder about the circular motion of the stars, and then they walk right past themselves without ever wondering. It's a very haunting statement to me, walking right past themselves without ever wondering. And here in our practice, we're doing something a bit different. We're beginning to turn in. And I, um, you know, I've been so touched, and I can speak for my colleagues, of, we're all so touched with, you know, we've talked with half of you now, and of course we've seen all of you in our group practice discussions, and the courage and the vulnerability of turning into what's here. So, some bows to you, to all of us. You know, and it's said of the shamans of old, where they would travel with people into their hells and back, and when asked how can they do that, the shaman said it's because we travel into our own hells and back. And so we're learning to turn into the pain and perhaps we begin to discover as Hafiz spoke about the ruby. Don't be ruby, I mean, um, Hafiz says, uh, don't be fooled, there's a ruby buried inside here. And I also just want to acknowledge that it might feel for many of us counterintuitive to turn into the pain. Again, it's so human of us to want to turn away. But we're learning to turn in, just like for those of us that have driven in snow country, we know to get out of a skid, you turn into it, but it feels at first kind of counterintuitive. But we're learning to turn in. And of course, when we turn in, sometimes things appear to be bigger. And there's a reason for that. It's because we're actually bringing our awareness to it. So if you have been experiencing sometimes some emotional feelings or painful physical feelings, you bring your attention to it, at first it might appear to feel bigger. And that's because you're actually bringing attention to it. And often at that critical point, we turn away. But if we hang out there and get curious, maybe something else arises. 
Not easy what I'm talking about. Actually, here's a, a very uh, descriptive, sort of like a middle age um, poem, at least with its language anyways. It's written by uh, Francois Fenelon. And he says, as the light increases, and we could call the light mindfulness, turning on the light of awareness, and I'd like to just, this is a little question for you all. As the light increases, we may see ourselves to be worse than we thought. Anybody relate to that? (laughs) As the light of awareness increases, we may see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. We never could have believed that we had harbored such things and we stand aghast. And while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter and we're filled with horror. Okay, it gets better. (laughs) For he says, bear in mind for your comfort, bear in mind for your comfort, that we only perceive the malady when the cure begins. Bear in mind for your comfort, we only perceive the malady when the cure begins. So this power of awareness is already beginning to change things. In one moment I'm unaware and I'm just lost in the sea of my own reactivity and when I become aware, that changes everything begin to come out of that cyclone. We can begin to respond in a much wiser way. This just takes a certain type of uh, courage to turn in and to face our hearts. Jennifer Wellwood, she writes in a very powerful teaching poem called Unconditional. And it's really like describing her experience of opening up into some places within her of the deepest of pains and what she discovers. She says, willing to experience aloneness. Willing to experience aloneness. I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fears. I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my losses, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. For each condition I flee from, it pursues me. While each condition I welcome transforms me. Each condition I flee from pursues me, while each condition I welcome transforms me. There's a certain efficiency to that. Franz Kafka evidently once said, you know, you have your suffering and you have your choice of whether you want to deal with it or not, but if you don't, then you get two sufferings. I'm into less suffering. I'll just, I'd rather just deal with one. And so the Buddha or Siddhartha Gautama, I should say, when I told you the story about the heavenly messengers and him leaving the palace. He goes off on this sojourn for a a number of years, seeking different masters to learn meditative practices, to understand this meaning of life and the meaning of suffering. 
and ways to get more peace. And at that time in ancient India, uh, the common meditation practices allegedly of that time had to do with developing deep absorption, concentration, and of course um, mastering these absorption type practices. And Pali, they're called the jhanas. There's various types of jhanas, absorptions. One can experience profound tranquility, serenity, calmness, one-pointedness, unification, and so forth. And he was a, an, a, a very good student and, and learned many of these practices and learned them so well that many of his teachers said, well, now you can come and sit next to me and you can teach with me. And Siddhartha realized that it still wasn't answering his deepest questions. And then he had heard about, maybe it's through punishing the body with self-mortification, that this would be the way to freedom. And so he practiced with a group of five ascetics, severe self-mortification practices. It is said that at one point, he lowered his food intake to one grain of rice a day. He became skeletal, supposedly almost putting the, belly on the, the hand on the belly, he could almost feel the, the tailbone. And at a certain point, he realized the futility of this punishing of the body. That this too was not giving him the wisdom that he was seeking. And so he left this group of five ascetics, restored his health, took in nourishment, and came across a tree and took his seat and made a resolve, he's not going to leave. I think that was the understanding of that he had been to so many different teachers, done so many different practices. It's time to just stay here and see for myself with my own direct experience and, and made this strong determination. Even if my skin falls off my bones, I'm going to just stay here. There's nowhere else to go. Quite a resolve and took his seat and began his practice. And, you know, it's really hard to know what exactly happened, but one story is that Supposedly, he recalled the memory of when he was a child and he was sitting underneath another tree and it was one of those beautiful spirit rock type days. Today was one of those like, oh my God, the sun and the shadows and the colors. <coughs> and I think he was supposedly sitting underneath a tree and just marveling at the beautiful, exquisite qualities of life, feeling the preciousness the connection. And then on another area, he looked over and he saw some farmers with some oxen and plows and they were getting ready to, with the plow blade, to cut into the soil to, you know, turn over the soil to begin planting. And perhaps because his sensitivity was so heightened, as the plow blade entered into the earth, there was kind of like a pang that he recalled it was in his heart and it was the pang was about the sensitivity that as the plow blade entered into the earth that he could almost like sense or feel or hear the cries of the worms being killed. And it left him in this, it's quite a moment if you think about it, this is what happened again, uh, but it's a beautiful story. This juxtaposition and it's, it's so human of like getting in touch so deeply with the preciousness of life and the fragility of life. They're both here. 
And perhaps it was that memory that, that when he began to sit and to be aware of the breath, he did something in his practice that he did not do before, that was not necessarily taught or emphasized before, was rather than becoming at one with the breath, developing the sense of unification, absorption, no doubt he could build his mind with great tranquility and and one-pointedness, but then he began to turn his attention towards the changing nature of the breath. Something happened. He did something different in his orientation with the meditation. And perhaps that shift from penetrating now into impermanence gave rise to profound understandings about life. These are known as uh, the Four Noble Truths. I really consider them more like four powerful realizations about life. The first was of suffering, that suffering does indeed exist, or dissatisfactoriness, anguish, um, sometimes things don't work out. And there's a, you know, we could, <clears throat> there's a lot of different descriptors that we could use for the word suffering or stressful or anxious or dissatisfactory in our language and in many languages. But there was this profound and sobering understanding of the truth of suffering, the truth of dukkha. Sometimes it's explained dukkha is it's like a it's like a it's like a wheel and it's it's not completely round and so it kind of one of my friends says it it goes the duke the duke the duke which is the kind of the origin of dukkha I don't know but it just was not rolling quite right it's kind of like life at times and um, so there was just a sobering and deep understanding of of this reality about life. And then he began to turn his attention towards causes. And what arose within him was a, a, a deep realization, understanding of the causes of unawareness, of ignorance, of not seeing clearly into the nature of things. And that perhaps because of this and misconceptions, it gave rise to craving. I'll go into in a little bit. But coming back to ignorance or not knowing, my teacher, I'm going to say his full name, Tungpulu Toya Kbae Seropia. I like saying that. And what that means is he's the, he's the World Peace Ghost Mountain Forest teacher. <laughs> this is in Burma. And um, he had a beautiful saying about ignorance or unawareness. He said, the midnight is dark and the new moon is dark and the thickness of the forest when the moon is not out is dark, but darkest of all is ignorance or unawareness. And so this unawareness or ignorance gives rise to misconceptions. And he spoke about that if, if you know you can begin to break the cycle of suffering. And if you don't know, you will go around and around. There's actually a very um, beautiful teaching of, called dependent origination, that when this happens, that happens. When that happens, this happens. It's like a causal will. And it's a causal will that describes how suffering just keeps on coming back again and again and again. But the, the, the good news is if you're aware, you can begin to break that cycle. If you're unaware, you go around and around. This is why in the Dharma teachings, mindfulness, awareness, 
is such a key element in helping us to see so clearly what is here. And with that unawareness, you give rise to craving or clinging. Looking for happiness in all places outside of us. Speaking about craving, some dictionary definitions, I think we all know it. Anybody know about craving and desire? (laughs) Me too. A strong feeling of wanting something, to have something, to wish for something to happen. A yearning, a craving, a hungering for, a thirsting, a coveting. It goes on. And when we speak about desire, it's actually in the Dharma, it doesn't necessarily that it's morally wrong but it's just simply a cause of suffering in that it's suffering when you continue to want what you can't have. So there's that hungering. It's said that there's no fire hotter than craving and no ice colder than hatred and no fog thicker than ignorance. Yet it's, of course, for many of us as human beings and human desires, we long for some happiness, long for peace. It's actually interesting, in Latin, the word desire comes from desidere, which is from its Latin root, and it it has this connection with uh, the stars, to see what the stars will bring. So I want to go into um, a very beautiful translation of the causes of suffering that um, a monk named Achen Amaro uh, rendered a beautiful translation or a powerful translation. He says that this is the noble truth of the cause of suffering and that it is craving. Craving that is compelling and intoxicating which causes us to be born into things again and again, ever seeking delight now here and now there, namely the craving for sensual delight, the craving to be something or someone, and the craving to feel nothing. I think he captures that quite well. A craving that is compelling and intoxicating. Anybody ever experienced that? (laughs) No one's raising their hand. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it causes us to be born into things again and again because it's so strong. Yeah. So I'd like to just speak about this a little bit. And so the first is this craving for sensual delight. You can say this is eros, so the libidinal instinct or drive and its operant is to feel good. It can be found in food and sex, uh, shopping. You know, I think it's really, um, I, I do not work for Amazon here, but it's be very kind of amazing, you know, like that one click, you own it. It's a little shot of happiness. 
<laughs> it lasts for a little bit because it's an endorphin. It, it goes in the brain. It feels good. And, but it's temporary. I've got to buy something else. It's so seductive because it feels good. And in speaking of feeling good, like what is it that feels so good about satiating ourselves with a desire? I really want to invite you to check it out. One day I was eating my favorite vegan ice cream and I was checking it out. I was in total ecstasy. I was at one with the tofuti cutie. <laughs> and um, everything was just wonderful. And then I saw I only had one bite left. And I could actually feel this sense of like, kind of sadness coming up. <laughs> This feeling like, what am, what am I going to do now? <laughs> Existential angst. And I saw the thought arise in me, I can go get another bowl. But I didn't get it. But it's so seductive. Because when we are satiating, there's, there's no pain. There's no suffering. We're at home. We're just... There's no sense of self in some sense. There's just this pleasure. So it's addictive, and you can see how you'd want to get it again and again and again. But because it's something outside of us, it dissolves like all things. Everything is changing. It's very powerful. Perhaps rooted in the belief that, that this ice cream or this whatever is going to make me whole and happy. Kabir, he writes, Friend, please tell me what I can do about this world that I keep on holding on to and it keeps on spinning out. I gave up sewn clothes and now I wear a robe. But one day I noticed the cloth was well woven, so I bought some burlap. But I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage and now I notice that I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed and now I'm proud of myself. This poem goes on for ages. <laughs> the craving for sensual delight. Perhaps the Rolling Stones said it best when they said, I just can't get no satisfaction no matter how much I try and I try and I try. I just can't get no. No, no, no. No satisfaction. But if I harbor the belief that somehow these things will make me happy. Maybe I'm sitting in the hall and I see somebody has on a nice scarf. And like, you know, if I had that scarf on, I'd probably meditate better. Maybe I wouldn't wander so much. Or I'm walking in the parking lot, like, let's see, there's a BMW there. I think I'd like that one. I mean, like, it just goes on and on and on. This wanting creature inside us, looking for happiness. Where is it to be found? This, I think, is one of the great discoveries that the Buddha saw, how we could get caught in this. doesn't mean we can't enjoy things, but if we have this belief that this is somehow what makes me whole, complete... You may discover that's not necessarily so. 
The second craving is to be someone or something, the narcissism, self-importance, and conversely, unimportance. It can go both ways, inflation, deflation. I'm great, I'm bad. I'll never forget what a person was, um, do, was teaching a retreat somewhere and this person was doing walking meditation. I happened to look out and he looked really good. He was just going slow and lifting and moving and placing and um, he looked really centered. I was impressed with that for a moment. Well, evidently, he was too, as he told me later. <laughs> he looked around in the meditation retreat and he realized... In that moment, he was the best walking meditator in the whole retreat. So that lasted about two seconds. And then he realized, how could I think like this? I'm absolutely the worst meditator in the entire meditation retreat. So it goes like that. Inflation and deflation. The sense of to be someone. You know, and developmentally speaking, it is so important if we're lucky enough to be seen by those that care for us, be it parents or caregivers, that we have known from an early age of our sense of worth and that helps build our sense of confidence in who we are. But there's times where we get smashed and we get humiliated And of course, you know, growing up is not easy with trying to fit in wherever we are and trying to be accepted and to be liked. There's a lot of pain at times with with our growing up to, to want to be seen, to be loved, to be liked, to be listened to, to be heard. So at times what begins to happen is we forget about our own worthiness and we begin to look for others for that worthiness, for that approval. Like, I need your approval to make me be whole as a person. John Kabat-Zinn and his wife Myla, they wrote a very beautiful parenting book called Everyday Blessings, The Art of Mindful Parenting. And they speak about importance of bringing mindfulness with uh, raising children and spoke about a number of qualities that are supportive for that. And, and the first three that they really encouraged, the first is acceptance of your child, the second is empathy, and that's something I think we all can understand quite well, and the third is sovereignty, which I wasn't quite sure what they meant. And then they defined th- sovereignty as is to honor your child's, their, their sovereign nature. And they gave an example, like, and it's really true. I mean, we actually have a, um, an eight-month-old in our family now. And, um, you know, she's just so amazing, Nafi. And, you know, like a little kid, an infant, before they know any, before they know, um, before they get shamed, <laughs> Um, you know, if she was up here sharing the Dharma talk with me, and if she had a poop, she'd just let it out right here. She could care less what you think. 
And she and she and she could just vomit, like vomit into the bull. Like she don't care, and she'll laugh, she'll cry, she'll fart. You know, like she's just herself. She's like fully sovereign. But then we we raise children. You know, you got to do it over here and over there. I mean, no doubt, I mean, it's probably a good idea that it doesn't happen up here. At the same time, some of that sovereignty gets smashed. We lose that sovereignty. And we begin to perhaps, to, that I, I need to get my worth from you. And perhaps it becomes rather than who it is that I am, it's what it is that I do. And I try to tell everyone about what it is that I do. The other day I was saying something and Christian said, you're kind of boasting there. You know, she was right. <laughs> and, and so it, but then, then I wanted to sit with that. What was that about? It was like wanting in some ways to get some type of like recognition of something or, or that I'm good. So it's, it comes in subtle ways. It comes in profound, big ways. Like how much we leave ourselves in search for this approval or recognition because inside perhaps there's a deep insecurity of not knowing that I'm okay. Perhaps rooted in the belief that I'm not enough. And, you know, there's reinforcement there. I was in Denmark a few months ago teaching a meditation retreat and one woman said to me, ever since I can remember, my mother has told me, I wish I didn't have you. Cool. Feel that right here. Imagine that. And, and this is part of a developmental upbringing. Like, I don't belong here. Profound wounding. We did a lot of work on that retreat. She did a lot of deep work. And she did this incredible ritual out in the forest by herself. And in some ways, she gave birth to herself, to her own sovereignty, began to taste it just a bit, which is huge. So the sense of sovereignty. And, you know, the Mahayana Buddhists would call it the Buddha nature. We each have this. And it can be taken away. But our desperation to be liked. Okay, true confessions. I use Facebook sometimes. And um, I put something up. It's another example of my longing. And um, I saw that people checked off like. You know, Anyone use Facebook here? <laughs> and you know, in the word like, and they click off like, like, like. And so I saw that I had 199 likes. And then I saw it rise up in me. I wanted that 200th one. That was like really, like I saw it rising up. I want 200. I got it. Was it enough? Well, yeah, maybe 300 would be better. It's never enough. So it's interesting, just that longing to be seen, to be loved, to be recognized. It's one of the most incredible gifts that we can offer another person is to see them to honor them, to acknowledge them. Dignity. So long as we keep on looking outside of ourselves, based and fueled in our own insecurity, we, we may not be fulfilled. So there's a country western song that says, I'm looking for love in all the wrong places, and that kind of just sums it up right there. The 
The last one is called the craving to feel nothing. <clears throat> Thanatos, the death instinct, annihilation, not wanting to be here, numbing, disassociating, drugs, alcohol, books, puzzle. I mean, you can get lost in so many things. The desire is not to be here, to not feel. And uh, th th this really came home to me some years ago when, fortunately, m my son did not have a cancer, but at one point there was some question about that. And I found that during that time, all I wanted to do was sleep. Because whenever I woke up, it was just too painful to feel it. And then I began to realize this teaching about the craving to feel nothing and how pervasive it was in my life in different areas where I just didn't want to feel, lose myself in whatever it is that you lose yourself in. So I think these are very profound realizations about these causes of suffering due to our unawareness and misconceptions give rise in looking for happiness outside of us. And I want to just acknowledge for all of us here, it is just so human to want to feel good, to be loved, to be held. And it's, uh, where are we looking for it? I sometimes follow like this yearning fantasy of home and I occasionally end up back in my mother's womb. And I reflected on that some. You know, the womb was actually a pretty decent place. I was fed. I didn't know I was going to die. Um, everything was taken care of. Not a bad place. But then I got too big. And I got, and we get either pushed out or sometimes we get cut out. And then there's that incredible moment where the cord is cut and we become disconnected. One moment connected, the next moment disconnected. And perhaps part of our longings is to belong, is to connect. I can't fit back in my mother's womb now. Where are we looking for these longings to be fulfilled? So these are very useful teachings. The times that I recognize that I've left myself yet again in looking for love or approval and recognizing this and coming back inside one's own heart. And I will say that there is really good reasons, again, why we look outside, particularly if we've had upbringings where we were made to feel small, deficient, inadequate. I have a friend of mine whose um, uh, mother took her life and... Um, the father was raising him and three other brothers, four sons, and they were very tall and 
my particular friend was very tall and kind of clumsy growing up, and he'd kind of bump into stuff and knock things down. And his father would get irritated from time to time and used to give him a nickname. And I think that you might have all have heard of um, the children's book King Midas. Everything you, uh, King Midas, and you touch it and it turns to gold. If you're really familiar with that children's book. Some of you are, some not, but the, there's a fable about King Midas, and everything you touch, it turns to gold. But anyways, he was given an, uh, another name from his father, and it was King Minus. Everything you touch breaks. That's pretty rough. Imagine being called that day in and day out from time to time, and how painful that is as far as our sense of our own self-worth. Even myself growing up, I'm sure each of us can tell stories of when we were shamed, made to feel small, humiliated. I had an uncle, and perhaps with his ignorance, he didn't know that he was hurting my feelings. And I was a young boy, and we'd go over to my grandmother's house often on Sundays and be with her and the family. And my grandmother knew I liked peanuts, and there'd be a couple of bowls of bowl over here and a bowl over here to give Bobby some peanuts, because Bobby liked peanuts. And my uncle got the drift of this because I'd come in and say hi to everyone and I'd go over and get the peanuts. Well, my uncle thought it was kind of funny and he, so he was starting to announce to everyone, instead of saying, hi, Bobby, he'd say, here comes the claw. Here comes the claw. Here comes the claw. But I don't have a claw. I got fingers. But more than that, because I, I didn't even think I even knew what claw meant, but I, what I did know was it didn't feel good to me. I felt shamed. I felt embarrassed. I felt like I'm not going over to those peanuts. And, and so we begin to internalize things as we grow up. And, you know, and we're developing our sense of self and ego. And how can we know anything different? This is our identity. To me, the most liberating aspect of these teachings is to begin to first of all to become aware of these stories that we tell ourselves and potentially begin to discover that these stories are not the full definition and that these stories at times that we tell ourselves are enslaving us To me, um, and I appreciated last night Anishka speaking about um, non-self, or the ownerless, uncontrollable nature of things. And I also think that a, a definition of, of, of uh, non-self or the ownerless nature is to to lessen some of these identifications that we have about ourselves. And actually, there's a very powerful quote from the Buddha, supposedly when he attained his enlightenment, sometimes referred to as um, the lion's roar. And he says, Through many a birth I've wandered in samsara, the world of birth, old age, disease, and death, again and again. And seeking but not finding the builder of the house, and sorrowful it is to be born again and again, O house builder, thou art seen. Thou shalt build no house again, all thy rafters are broken, 
Thy rich pole is shattered, my mind has attained the unconditioned. Achieved is the end of craving and ignorance. And particularly when he says that my mind has attained the unconditioned, to me that's implying that there's a condition. And the conditioning is our story, is our narrative, is how we interact and see the world. And of course, some of these stories that we've told ourselves are quite horrific. And I don't want to negate these stories that we've told ourselves because it's based perhaps on our definite experience, our upbringing. If I was told every day I'm not going to amount to anything, I'm probably going to believe I'm not going to amount to anything. That's my reality. And this is where I think these liberating teachings is to begin to penetrate and to see these stories that we tell ourselves that enslave us and recognize these are erroneous definitions. We speak about enlightenment. It's the, it's the eradication of greed, hatred, and ignorance that exists within the senses and the mind and the heart. Becoming more free of the story, and that's through these applications of mindfulness, the mindfulness of the body, the mindfulness of the feelings, the mindfulness of the mind, and the dharmas, these collections of teachings that point to support liberation. Margaret Wheatley, she speaks about this possibility when we become mindful of change. It's very beautiful what she writes here. She says, I notice that we notice what we notice because of who we are. And we create ourselves by what we choose to notice. And once this work of self-authorship has begun, we inhabit the world we've created and we self-seal. And we don't notice anything except those things that confirm what we already think about, who we already are. But when we succeed in moving outside of our normal processes of self-reference and can begin to look upon ourselves with self-awareness, then we have a chance at changing. We can break the seal. When we succeed in moving outside of our normal processes of self-reference and can look upon ourselves with self-awareness, then we have a chance at changing. We can break the seal. We can notice something new. This to me is one of the most powerful teachings of the Dharma. And it's amazing just how habituated and conditioned and ingrained these stories are that we tell ourselves day in and day out. Matter of fact, many of the stories that we tell ourselves we wouldn't tell to our friends because if we did, we wouldn't have any friends. I'm shocked at times, uh, and I've heard in different groups that I've facilitated of people having this realization like in my entire adult life I haven't said I can't remember saying anything nice about myself I call myself a dummy I call myself stupid whatever it is these types of calling these things to ourselves didn't come out of nowhere it came out of our conditioning 
And this is the liberating qualities of these teachings in the Dharma to begin to see this conditioning and potentially begin to um, become less enslaved by it. This is called The Tendrils of the Mind by Dorothy Hunt. She says, no matter how many words arise in your mind, or how many places its musings travel, no matter how many thoughts or opinions it clings to, how many attachments to how many stories, no matter how many shoots called projections or memories, or how many judgments it imagines are true, there is one single tendril wound around all the others that and this must be unwound if you want to be free. This last one to drop is the one you most cherish, the one that insists that the productions are real, the tendril that causes all of your suffering, the one that holds you tightly is to a thought called me. So this is our practice. Growing in awareness and heart and beginning to see these stories more clearly that we can potentially become more free of them. This is the deep work of the heart. There's perhaps nothing more difficult and more ennobling than this purification of one's own heart. And of course, this world needs this. This old folk song, let there be peace on earth, let it begin with me. This is what each of us can take responsibility for our own suffering, our own pain, to investigate it. To begin to reconcile, to begin to make peace, to begin to see through these stories. Carl Jung, he writes, I can feed the hungry, I can forgive an insult, I can love my enemies, that these are great virtues, but what if I should discover that the poorest of the beggars and the most impudent of the offenders are all within me, and that I stand in the need of the alms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved, that I stand in the need of the alms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved. This is our deep work. Deep work of healing our hearts. So we'll just sit for a few moments and just feeling into this precious heart. It's beating, giving us life. The great reminder of all that is fragile and precious. May we offer compassion to our hearts. 
May we cultivate deep wisdom and inner seeing of these stories that we have told ourselves that may enslave us. And so I'll end with a poem from William Starford, an American poet. And this was actually the very last poem he wrote three days before his death. He knew he was dying. And it's called The Way It Is. He says, "Is the thread you follow and it goes among the things that change. But it doesn't change. And people wonder about what you're pursuing and you have to explain about the thread. But it's hard for others to see it. And while you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen. People get hurt or die. And you're suffering, you get old. But nothing you can do can stop times unfolding. Nothing you can do can stop times unfolding. And you don't ever let go of the thread. And you don't ever let go of the thread. So for me, the thread is mindfulness. I just thought I'd like to share with you a story. <coughs> this is about my beloved teacher, another teacher, Leintitz, you know. <laughs> and um, Leindetzero was uh, just to describe kind of his personality a little bit he, he, he was very unassuming he was the opposite of charisma if you went into a room you might notice the furniture first before you noticed him um, incredibly humble incredibly kind without any self-importance Though, of course, not its opposite of self-loathing either, just humility. I was very close to him. He was, he, was, he was like my father. I loved him like my father. And, um, you know, there's many a times I would sit with him, massaging his feet, listening to him breathe, and his breath would, like, like deep winds taking me to um, a deep forest. So quiet and serene. Well, he ended up, um, you know, going. He was in the United States for a number of years and went back to Burma. And I 
was gifted by my wife and friends to see him one more time. He was in his 90s. And um, so I, I went there for a few weeks to be with him and practice. And on the very last night, um, I realized I still had one question for him. And I didn't know whether I'd ever see him again. And so I asked him, the time was right, and I asked him, Seto, you've been a monk, um, he was like 92, he'd been a monk for like 72 years at that point. And I said, Seto, I want to get a teaching about death, and what are you going to do when death knocks on your door? You know, you're 92, you've already lived past the average human lifespan, and I'm just curious, well, what are you going to do? He's a long-time meditator. And so he looked at me for a long time, didn't say anything. And then, I had lived with him for eight and a half years, and then I saw his right cheek go up and down. That was not a good sign. <laughs> He's going to say something. And then he said to me, Bob, are you afraid to die? And he kind of caught me off guard because I didn't ask him that question. I asked him what he was going to do when he was going to die. <laughs> and he looked at me and he shook his head and goes, you need to meditate more. <laughs> I said, that's right, Seattle. <laughs> He's right. So I sat there for a while just taking that in. But I got the courage up again to ask him, what are you going to do? And so again, he looked at me for a long, long time. And then he spoke. And then he said to me, what I'll say to you, and that was pretty good. He said, when I'm dying, if I see something, I'll be mindful of seeing. If I hear something, I'll be mindful of hearing. If I feel something, I'll be mindful of feeling. If I taste something, I'll be mindful of tasting. If I see something, I'll be mindful of seeing. If there's thoughts and emotions that are arising in my mind, I will be mindful of thoughts and emotions. This is how I will die. This is how I want you to die. And um, that was a great teaching. Die with your eyes and your heart open to the mystery. And to live our lives open to the mystery of this life. I remember telling my grandmother, she lived to 103, and I thought everyone was going to die, but I was beginning to not wonder if that was maybe not true for her. But she did live to 103. And I remember telling her, this was when she was over 100, about Seto and what he said about dying that way. And you know, she's this like Jewish Russian lady and came over on the boat from, from Lithuania. And then she says, you know, that makes good sense to me. I like that, Bobby. And I, you know, I love my, like, my 103-year-old, you know, 100-year-old grandmother. She thought dying mindfully was a good idea. And um, so that's a little taste of the shadow, that this, the power of awareness, the power of awareness can break through all of this conditioning to the ennobling path of the heart. And sometimes people wonder, it's like, oh my gosh, if I'm enlightened, I won't, I won't be myself. But perhaps we could just say, you know, if you're enlightened, you, you just won't have the parts that don't serve you. Or we speak about, psychologically speaking, what lessens and eradicates is greed, hatred, and ignorance. So when you think about its opposites, it doesn't sound bad. If there's no greed, there's contentment. 
If there's no hatred, there's open heart and love. If there's no ignorance, there's clarity. That don't sound bad. Yeah. So we'll end again. <laughs> With another teaching. With the breath in and the breath out, you can have a little taste for a moment. Breathing in and breathing out, what would it be like in this moment that there's no greed and in its place is contentment? There's no need to want anything, no need to push anything away. Breathing in and breathing out, contentment. Some other breaths in and out, dissolving of hatred in the sense of ease and an open heart of great kindness of compassion. And as we take another few breaths in and out, the sense of ignorance is going away and there's the clarity, the understanding, the dissolving of greed, dissolving of hatred, brings great wisdom, contentment, and an open heart. The clarity of the mind and heart, seeing through all these stories that have enslaved us, May all beings discover the gateways into the heart and may there be peace. So thank you so much for your attention and time and um, do some walking practice and, and we'll come back for a last sit in a bit. Thank you. And feel free to, to get up as your leisure. <laughs>